Hello. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. I think it's true that most Christians would agree that our Lord Jesus promoted love. We are to love God with all of our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to love others as Jesus loved us. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, gave us deep insight into love, especially in the sense that we are to put others before ourselves. And in the letter to the Galatians, Paul said that love is one of the fruits of the Spirit. But as Christianity gained political favor and power and became a majority population, it turned from the loving way of relating to others and embraced coercion, oppression, even torture to gain compliance to Christianity. And it executed any who refused to act. This coercive approach was against other faiths and worldviews, but also against other Christians. What is among the things that are shared by those of us on the Christian left is the conviction that such deeds were shameful and to be grieved. We should confess openly that they were sinful, terrible, wrong, and should be repented of and that we should ask forgiveness. This series is one effort to do that in a small way. I'm going to be interviewing people who are not Christian for the purpose of gaining a loving understanding and to find a way to build bridges and to live together around shared experience. One of the communities Christians have been most hostile to is the pagan community. So what better place to begin to have a conversation with than with that community? So my guest today is Byron Ballard. She is an educator, a writer, has deep roots here in the Appalachian Mountains, and is a high priestess of the Wiccan community. So hi, Byron. Welcome. I am so glad to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for doing this for us. Let's begin with just clarifying some terms and getting Absolutely. an understanding uh, because there seem to be so many different terms and uh, I want to make sure we're using the right ones. So talk to us about what terms we should be using and the diversity in that. I absolutely will. And I have to, as I think anyone who follows a spiritual tradition as diverse as what we are talking about tonight, I have to begin by saying these words are my words. Many of the religions I'm going to be talking about are not codified in any real way. And so I'm speaking for myself and for some members of my community, but we do not have a central authority. So for everything I say that is absolutely true for me, there are going to be a thousand people who disagree with it. And it's kind of the glory of modern paganism, to be honest. So let's start with that word, the word pagan. It has come to mean, in fairly modern parlance, someone who is godless, someone who is not of a particular religion. 
it couldn't possibly be more different than that. We are absolutely God-full, not God-less. We are, for the most part, polytheists, which means we celebrate divinity in many forms. And the word pagan, as it was originally used at the beginning, middle part of the Roman Empire, was it means paganus pagani, means country dweller, so that when Christianity became the state religion of Rome, the people in the backwards area, the suburban people, the rural people, the same way rural people are now, and I speak from experience as a rural person, they went, eh, that newfangled religion in Rome, that's fine with that Jesus fella, but I'm going to stick with the pantheon of gods I know from Jupiter on down. If it was good enough for my granddaddy, it's good enough for me. So then pagan came to mean non-Christian. So in the heart of empire, in Rome itself, Christianity became the state religion. But out in the country, people like country people everywhere were stubborn and they weren't ready to convert. So that's where we get the notion that paganism is not religion or is anti-religion, when really, originally, it meant the religion of the country people. Okay. Good. Does that surprise you? No. no. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Makes makes sense. (laughs) So what is... How does this differ then from Wiccans? Well, I will give you an example that will strike very close to home for you. So if you think of paganism as an overarching umbrella term like Christianity, so underneath that umbrella, there are substrata of what the religion is. So with Christianity, there is Orthodox Christianity, there is Protestant Christianity, there's Catholicism. And then if you look at Protestant Christianity and go below that umbrella, then there are probably sects of Christianity happening right now, being formed. And it's the same way with paganism. And in fact, the word paganism in what I refer to as the pagan community has become somewhat problematical. But we still use that. It's a kind of a buzzword that we all tend to understand, even if we disagree with it. So if you look at the great umbrella of pagan religions, which are often polytheistic, they are often earth-centered, so they follow the cycle of the agricultural year. They, um, They often harken back to older religions, or they are reconstructions of older religions, especially older pre-Christian European religions. So if you look at that umbrella of paganism, underneath that are going to fall things like Wicca and Druidry and all the other religions, that the spiritualities that fall underneath that umbrella. And then if you look at Wicca, which is a, a fairly new religion, I love doing interfaith work when they want to make me be the first one to talk because it's the oldest religion. And I just laugh and laugh and laugh. And I point to whatever rabbi is there and go, no, no, you get to go first. Because Wicca really was begun in the middle of the last century. And that's when it was put together, put together as a religion. So it's a fairly young religion, but it's based on the older tribal religions of Europe. But underneath Wicca, there are 
all the different kinds. There's British traditional Wicca, which is probably the oldest version. But even as we speak, there are people gathered in circles who are forming a new Wiccan tradition. And what, what is most evident about Wicca is, again, the sense either of polytheism or of a duality of gendered deity. So traditional Wicca will talk about the Lord and the Lady, and they divide that gender very neatly into male and female. Other kinds of Wicca only celebrate divinity in female form. And that's one of the, one of the hallmarks of Wicca. The other is following that cycle of the agricultural year so that we have something we call the wheel of the year, which is eight holy days. Four of them are two solstices and two equinoxes. And in between those are the cross-quarter days. And those are, for the most part, based on older European festivals of the, of the agricultural year. So we're coming up now in just a few weeks to Beltane, which is one of the, it is often billed to us as a Celtic fire festival. But it's one of those cross-quarter days. So there are eight holy days, primary holy days, that fall about six and a half weeks apart. And they are of equal value. So there isn't, there isn't the very important holy day and then the sort of lesser holy day. They all are of equal value and they celebrate different things. So the two solstices and the two equinoxes, the quarter days, divide the year neatly into four parts. But the cross-quarter days are this beautiful crucible of a time to plant, a time to tend, a time to harvest, and a time to rest. And whether you are a farmer or not, to follow the cycle of the seasons that way and, and enter in springtime to a time when you plant the seeds for whatever you are doing in the world. Maybe you have the new ideas for your ministry, for instance, or the new ideas for your creative project. And then you tend that project during the time of tending. And when it is ready to be harvested, you bring it in, and then you rest. And it's something modern people are very bad about, especially Westerners. We don't like to rest. We are, our whole worth seems to be bound up in how much we get done, how much we produce. But the ancient people understood that in order to continue this cycle, you had to have a time where you just kicked back, where you rested, where you let your body and your soul rest, just as you let the land rest. So, what kind of Wiccan are you? I am an offshoot of Dianic Wicca, which is called American Tribal. Okay. And I'm a high priestess. And how does that relate to Native American? Well, they're, they're not dissimilar in that they are generally Earth-centered religions, or spiritualities is maybe a better way to put that. Um, we deal in, in Wicca and in many pagan spiritualities with um, elemental forces. We do the four classical elements of earth, air, fire, and water. And we honor the not only the cycles of the season, but the things that make up the planet itself. So we honor these beautiful mountains, and we honor water and we honor that the wind blows and inspires us and we honor fire always so talk about your own journey uh, mm. how, did, how did you come to this 
Well, I began life unchurched, which is what we say here in the mountains. My um, my great-grandfather was one of the founders of a Methodist church. So on my mother's side, uh, they were all Methodists, whether whether nominally or not, my uh, my grandfather was a was a Methodist lay minister, and on my father's side they were all Baptist folks, good Baptist folks. So I, I am not exactly sure if my dad got in a fuss with a preacher. I, in in either case, I did not grow up going to church regularly, but I did spend weekends. My brother and I would spend weekends sometimes with my grandmother, and she sang in the choir in a Methodist church. So we would go, and and we always sat in the second row, and we sat beside Mr. Otis Green, who was the mayor of Asheville during the Depression and right after. And, and my, our grandmother would be there up in the choir loft watching us the whole time. We were given a shiny quarter to put in the collection plate, and we were told to be very still. And if we were not still... We were given the hairy eyeball from the alto section of the choir. I know that eyeball. (laughs) I've been thinking so much today because it's Palm Sunday that I was in the junior choir there for a little while, and we were supposed to come in on Palm Sunday, you know, waving the palm fronds and singing the Hosanna. And we, they kept us all up in the balcony of the church where we were sword fighting with the palm fronds. And then we realized that everyone below could see us and they were all turned to look at us, including my grandmother with oh. the hairy eyeball. We were in oh, so wow. much trouble. <laughs> so continue. So I always believed as I was growing up that that the mountain that I was raised on, because I was raised in as we say, West by God, Buncombe County, on the side of a mountain in a, in a cove. And, and everything around me was infused with life. And now, of course, we would say that I was an animist, and I have been called that before. But to me, the trees had the same sort of soul that my dogs had and the cats had and the people had and the garden had, and the apple trees had. And I didn't discern a difference in any of that. So in the mid-70s, I graduated high school and went to college at UNCA. And there was a group of us that met in what was then the student center. And we had, um, we had a discussion group about all sorts of things. But one of them was the work of Starhawk. And Starhawk is a very, uh, very well-known, I'm going to say goddess theologian. And and we then did self-dedication as a circle of people, and that's when I became Wiccan. That's when I had, I had a kind of spirituality that people could begin to understand. Before that, I didn't know why the stories of the gods of Greece and Rome why those were only stories, but things from the Bible were quote-unquote real. I didn't understand the difference. And I was, um, I was an expert in uh, Roman mythology when I was in high school. I took four years of Latin. And I, I placed second in the whole state at our junior classical league conference one year um, in mythology. So the whole notion that the world itself is peopled 
by folks that believed very differently from the Baptist and Methodist that I knew. And their structure around divinity was different. And their interaction with divinity was different. And I found it so interesting. And, of course, that kind of stuff gets you in trouble, especially if you are in West by God, Buncombe County. I do a lot of interfaith work now, and and I was telling someone back in the 70s, you didn't really talk about religion because everybody you knew was either a Baptist or a Methodist. And what was there to say? Oh, okay, so you go to that Methodist church. Oh, you go to the ba- that Baptist church. Now, if you were in town, you would have had more choices, but not very many more. You'd have had more Christian choices. You could have been Catholic, could have been Jewish. But beyond that, we just didn't go here until fairly recently. So you are a high priest. I'm a high priestess. Yes, yes sir, and, I am. And how do you get how do you get there? You train just like you become just like any kind of clergy person does. We tr- I trained. I didn't go to a seminary program, though there are pagan seminaries now. But I became a high priestess in 1996. And you train individually with people, with people who have already done it. You train with other clergy folk. You you learn all the rituals. You learn about other spiritualities and other uh, other pagan and Wiccan spiritualities and how they look and how they differ from what you do. And then it's a lot of on-the-job training. So do you get assigned a congregation? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? No, usually, I, to think about it in terms of, um, of a, a Christian paradigm, you would probably be raised up from your congregation. And at that point, you would choose through your skills and abilities to do a kind of servant leadership. So you would then train with all the people you could train with while you also were serving that particular congregation. Now, however, I am one of the founders of the Mother Grove Goddess Temple, and we do have clergy training programs. And we and they are, they are rigorous, and it is both book learning, as we say, and on-the-job training, and, and it's also familiarizing... Um, priestesses, and so far they've all been female, it's familiarizing priestesses with what it takes to walk through the world as clergy for a minority religion. And that's something you have to learn by experience. But if we can share our years of how we do that, it really makes their job a lot easier. So they're not having to confront the drunken, knife-wielding man standing outside the public park where you just did a ritual, they're not going to have to deal with that because they're going to understand how it is you do that in a way that doesn't draw the kind of attention that that sort of thing happens. Well, I'm glad you kind of brought that up because in wanting to have this interview and trying to find someone with whom I could interview, um... I've noticed that, and I understand that there is a protectiveness, seems to be, um, because of the hostility. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, yeah, um, how do you find each other, and how do you build community? 
Well, it's not easy. If, if you are blessed in your community with a central location, a metaphysical store. For instance, in Asheville, we have the Asheville Raven and Crone, which is a metaphysical store. And people come in there and they begin to connect. Um, strong pagan communities will often have sort of gateway events. Like we do public rituals for each of the holy days. And they are open to, as we put it, the respectful public. And people can learn about things there. There's a an organization here in town called the Coalition of Earth Religions, and they do a pagan's night out. So once a month, they get together, and it's a place where you can be among people who probably think pretty much the way you do, but there's not a commitment. You can talk to them very informally and learn what it is they do or what their group does. And so, yes, we have to be usually, I'm going to say usually, very careful but we have, and I'm knocking on wood, but not so you can hear it. Um, we have been fortunate in the last several years that we have a big enough presence that we are rarely bothered anymore. Um, so in building a relationship with Christian community, mm -hmm. um, what is it that your community desires Christians to know about you? Mm. That is, a, that really is a $64 question, isn't it? Because for some members of the Christian community, it doesn't matter to them if I give them a beautiful speech about we are based on the pre-Christian religions of Europe and old Europe, and this is what the divinity structures look like, and this is what our holy days look like. That feels very... Um, cut and dried to me. I can tell you all about that, and you will nod and go, oh, well, that seems like a religion. Okay. But for some members of the Christian community, if you are not their particular flavor of Christian, all of that becomes satanic. And Satan, as you know, is not part of our deity structure. Satan is a Christian god or a Christian demigod, or a Christian fallen angel, whatever language you want to put around that. But we and our worship is often relegated to quote-unquote Satanism because it isn't the particular flavor of Christianity that that, that that particular Christian follows. And so we have had to deal with that again and again. Um, one example I love to give people is we did in the late 1990s, my community did a proclamation from the mayor's office for Earth Religions Awareness Week at the end of October. And because of the firestorm that hit around that, we did a press conference. And two people arrived from, a, I believe, to be a small Baptist church up in Madison County, and they wanted to know all about what we were doing, and they wanted to do a little proselytizing, and they wanted to remind us of the good news of Jesus Christ. They went through all of that, and so after the press conference was over, I sat with them because I'm a native of this place. I understand what they're talking about. I can talk their language. And we talked, and we talked, and we talked about farming, and we talked about how we hadn't had enough rain this year. We did all of that stuff, and I think those two men went away thinking, what a nice woman. It's a shame she's going to hell. So 
in a way I touched them, but not at a level that would that will or would have stopped the proselytizing. And that is always consistently the problem with the interaction of anyone in a minority religion and Christianity. Because Christianity is compelled by the very word and nature of the gospel to tell the good news. To t- they have to tell the good news. And it doesn't matter if they've told you the good news over and over and over again. They still got to tell you the good news. And, and it doesn't often end with, here, let me tell you about Jesus. It goes farther and farther and farther, and there becomes this judgmental aspect. And that is simply, it's obnoxious to have to deal with if you're someone whose spiritual tradition does not do proselytizing. We don't care if you're a pagan or not. In much the way the Dalai Lama was quoted a few years ago saying, don't come and be a Buddhist. Be the very best of whoever you and whatever you are. Do that. You don't have to all become Buddhists. So we believe the same way. We're not proselytizers. But when we are confronted with that again and again, and some people are very gentle about it and very kind, and there might be a pamphlet, but some people are obnoxious. Some people border on violence. And as someone who has studied the persecutions during inquisitional Europe, I can tell you that is not so far from the backs of our minds. Well, yeah, I, I understand because uh, particularly one Baptist church that is making the news all the time about their aggressiveness uh, mm-hmm. in condemning people. Uh, and I know that the perspective for many, as you said, uh, is that paganism is associated with Satanism. Absolutely. Um, that is a perception for a lot of people who don't listen to anyone except possibly their preacher and somebody who's preaching on the radio or TV. Well, in, in polytheism, mm-hmm. um, there are, though, aren't there the diversity of kind of the dark side and the light side of the force? Oh, tell me what the dark li- dark side and the light side. You define that for me, and then I'll answer that question. Well, I, I guess I'm thinking in, 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 is it Greek or Roman mythology? I'm not much of a... <laughs> oh no! Are you going to test my mythological yeah, uh, um, remembrance? I mean, because it isn't like Hades. Uh, he is the god, the god of the underworld. He's the god of the underworld. Yeah. That's where people go when they die. Yeah, but wasn't he also kind of at odds with Zeus? And well, that he was Zeus's brother. Is Zeus's brother? So I don't know. Are you at odds with your siblings ever? Occasionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you also have to understand that. Much of the mythological content that's come down to us has come down with a Christian filter. So we're not exactly sure how that relationship worked for the Greeks, but their notion of the afterlife, he ruled the realm of the afterlife. And it doesn't mean, it's not like hell where you go to be punished. It is what happens after life. So there wasn't for that particular religious structure, there wasn't the sense of here's this beautiful, shining, happy heaven place, and boy, if you were bad or you didn't accept Jesus as your savior or or um, Mithras as your savior, then you went to this bad place. It wasn't it wasn't divided up like that. But I will talk to dar- talk about dark and light because everything I do goes back to nature, everything. So in the day. 
There is a time of lightness. And we do the things we do when the sun is up, whatever those things are for you and your culture and in your life. And then there are the things that we do at night. And those are different things sometimes. So at night, we rest, we sleep. And we understand now through, our, through the science of medicine that healing really happens when we're resting. So it happens in the dark. We know that seeds gestate in the dark. Babies gestate in the dark. So we have set up over these centuries this dichotomy of good things happen in the light and bad things happen in the dark. But the reality is there are different things that happen in both of those areas. So is gestation bad because that happens in the dark? Not really. It just means that the dark is a different it's a different time, just as the light is a different time. And we even can look at that when we look at the year. So there is the time when the year, like the moon, is waxing, and we are in that time now. And the days get longer and longer, and the nights get shorter and shorter, and we're out with our shorts on, and we get to stay up really late. And then at midsummer, like clockwork, the days start to get shorter, and the nights get longer. And that takes us all the way to the winter solstice, when like clockwork, it all happens again. So waxing and waning, just as the moon waxes and wanes. And there are different things that we do in different times, if we are being cognizant of those times and the best thing to do in them. So where do you see bridges? Between us. I see bridges in so many places. One of them, when we're talking about those elemental structures, is water quality. I want the quality of water to be very high because I want to be able to drink it and be healthy, just as you do. But on a spiritual level, I want the water quality to be high because we respect water as an element and we don't pollute water and we don't treat water badly because it is one of the elemental building blocks of our spiritual traditions. So if I don't want that creek to be polluted, there are going to be Baptist folks, to use Baptist as an example since I'm sitting across from one, Baptist folks may want that creek to be clean because that's where they do their baptisms. So that's a commonality. We both want the creek to be clean. And we can disagree on the reasons why, but if our, our mission is to keep the creek usable for all of us, we don't have to necessarily wrap deity around that together. I mean, I mean a, a Baptist church can be praying that, that the municipality makes the right decision and doesn't pollute the creek because that's where we do our baptisms, and I can be doing ritual in my community that the municipality makes the right decisions and not pollute the water. And those are two separate things we do, but our intention is to keep the water clean. So that's one bridge. Another bridge is in service. And you and I, if we could not do, if we could not come together in worship and ceremony, we could come together to feed hungry people. Because I believe deeply, deeply that the that the baseline of every religious system, of every spirituality, is hospitality. And so if you and I 
and the Unitarian Universalists down the hill and the Presbyterian Church all come together to create a food pantry so that hungry people can have their tummies filled. That doesn't that serves all of our spiritualities, but it doesn't necessarily serve them in exactly the same way, and that's okay. So when we can find the projects that we can work on together, then what happens is the religions become relational to each other. And if we cannot be in relationship together, that's the basis. We have to be able to say, oh, I know them. Oh, no, they're good folks. You know, we built a house together for someone who, had, who was homeless. Or, oh, my gosh, yeah, I see them at the room in the inn. They're the ones that always bring that great lasagna. So then you become, you come into a place where the relationship becomes the important thing. And we don't have to worship together. When we can, it's wonderful. Earlier today, our friend Mary was talking about the amazing multi-faith service we did after 9-11. And it was, it was extraordinary. And we had come together as, as a faith community, which is the language we often use. And it began, it began with the Islamic call to prayer. And there was a Baptist speaker and a Presbyterian speaker. There was a rabbi. I spoke The Charge of the Goddess, which is one of our more beautiful liturgical pieces. And we all came together in that moment in a way that we possibly couldn't do every week or every holy day. But it's because we were in relationship over this disaster that had happened. And that's the key. That's the key. Because you're going to be unlikely to burn me at the stake if you know me. Baptists tend to get drowned rather than... Burn. And I'm going to be unlikely to drown you if I know you. How's that? Yes, that's how. That's, that's what they did to us was they, they drowned us. Baptists and the kind of Baptist that I was raised as being, um, despite the media impression, as, as its core humility. <laughs> well, uh, it's, a, it's a funny thing to me when when suddenly the Southern Baptist Convention w would be lockstep about something, I'd go, oh, are those really Baptists? Because Baptists disagree all the time about yeah. stuff. And part of the humility is rooted in the recognition that because we are all limited and, as Christians say, sinful, um, we never creedalized mm. anything. Mm -hmm. We always, we passionately held confessions, uh, but we didn't, go that extra step of creedalizing uh, because we always held the door open uh, knowing that we could possibly have something wrong. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately uh, what ran through, uh, still runs through the, the, the faith of the Baptist community that I'm a part of uh, is cooperativeness. Mm -hmm. that, uh, you may disagree on ideas, but if you find something about which you can cooperate, on which you can cooperate, uh, then you can get past the ideas into the cooperation. And while that tended to be uh, limited to Baptist or other Christians, it ultimately didn't. That, that, that Baptists felt that they could extend that to anyone mm -hmm. uh, with whom they found an idea on which they could cooperate. Absolutely. 
Um, so. Oh, oh, let me tell you one thing, another thing we have in common that, that I love to talk about, which is, so in Baptist congregations of my youth that I knew, there was nobody holding y'all down. So if there was somebody in the congregation that was an extraordinary speaker or was touched by the grace of the Holy Spirit, they would be raised up to be a preacher, and then they'd be, they might even create their own church somewhere else, or or half the congregation could get mad at the preacher about something that he said that they didn't agree with, and they just go off and form another Baptist church. Well, that's what happens with Wicca all the time. Okay. So you'll have a Wiccan coven, and it goes along for a while, and then there will be part of that coven that's like, well, I, I just don't agree with that. And then they'll go off and form a coven. So the kind of independence of spiritual thought as well as action, is something that Baptists and Wiccans have in common. And I'm kind of proud of that. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's going to be above us telling us what to do. We, we answer to the divines and nobody else. Well, so what are common um, practices relating to people care, earth care that you all do? Well, it's that glorious thing of using the word clergy, and that's the word I use. So well, people will say, well, you're a high priestess. What is your honorific? How should I address you? Well, mostly I will say, well, you should just call me Byron because that's my name. But if you've got to give me an honorific, it's Reverend. So I am the Reverend Ballard. I'm Reverend Ballard. And Knowing that, and that's something we teach our priestesses, is as soon as you start complicating things by saying, I am a high priestess of blah, 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 you just make it too complicated. So you go to a hospital because somebody is sick, and you say to them, I am Barbara's pastor. And then you, and then you go in and you do your pastoral work. And so it's, it's very like anything any other clergy person does. So we marry people, we bury people, and in between, we celebrate their coming of age, we, we dedicate them into a religious, with a religious service, into a particular spirituality. We do all that stuff that clergy does. We do it a little differently because we do it differently, but it's not dissimilar. So that when I do a, a wedding or a hand fasting for someone, they, and they're grandma's going to be there, and their grandma is a Methodist, then grandma is probably not going to be insulted or offended by the ceremony because it's a beautiful joining of two people who are in love. And the language may be unfamiliar to her, but the intent is not. Okay. Well, any questions you have of us? <laughs> Here's the funny thing that I tell people all the time when I do interfaith work is that I kind of feel like living in a culture where Christianity is the dominant and sometimes dominating religion, I probably know, and I know for sure I know more about Christianity than some Christians do. So I don't know that I have particular questions for you as a denomination, but as an individual, I would love to sit down and have coffee with you and talk about the nature of the divine or talk about the interaction between your ancestors and you. What does that look like in your spirituality? What does it look like 
when your descendants choose a different spiritual path than yours? How does that look and how does that affect you? And how do you, are there workarounds for that? Or is it, is there a kind of an absolutism? So as a person, as a friend, I might have lots of questions about how you, with your particular brand of Christianity, do things. But Christianity in general, I have a pretty good idea how it runs. Okay. <laughs> well, this has been a joy. Absolutely, a it has. And I am deeply thankful I'm uh, grateful for your willingness to, to have this conversation together. You've been listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. I'm going to have series in this podcast. They won't be episodes grouped together in a unit, but ongoing themes that I will return to regularly. One of those is conversations with other than Christian peoples and groups. You've just listened to an episode in that series. Another one with which I began this podcast is Rachel Reconciliation. With my next episode, I introduce a new series on peacemaking. The catalyst for this series was my discovery of an amazing book titled Peacemaking and the Challenge of Violence in World Religions. It is edited by Muslim scholar Irfan Omar and Christian scholar Michael Dufay. Doctors Omar and Dufay developed this book in conjunction with a conference in which they gathered seven peoples, including themselves, that represented seven of the world religions. Each person was to be both a scholar and a practitioner of their religion. What each person was to present was insights about peacemaking related to their religion and resources for peacemaking from that religion. I don't know if I will get to interview all of the contributors up to that book, but one contributor has agreed to an interview. It is Dr. Tink Tinker. Dr. Tinker is Professor Emeritus at the Illiff School of Theology in Denver and was honored by the school with the Tinker Program Endowment. Dr. Tinker is a member of the Wazazi, or Osage, nation and is a scholar and practitioner of American Indian traditions. You'll want to hear what Dr. Tinker has to say, so please tune in. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.